Well, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Hope you are doing well. And we're continuing our march through some really difficult questions that are often posed to us um, with basing this off of Rebecca's book, Confronting Christianity. And today we've got the light and easy discussion of religious violence and the question about whether or not kind of religious violence is kind of instigated by religion. And so before we get to that, Rebecca, um, tell us tell us what you're working on right now. I mean, you wrote this book. Um, I don't know if it has surprised you at how well it's done and how well it's been received. Maybe, maybe you were a prophet and you were able to see that coming right away. Um, but so, and, and what are you working on right now? Yeah, uh, right now, this minute, or at least five minutes ago before I stopped for this call, I'm working on a new book, which um, I got the contract last Friday. The manuscript's due on the 1st of December, and I'm hoping to get it out in April. So it's going to be an extremely quick turnaround. That is a quick and, turnaround, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if, if these are popular where you guys are, but um, up in the northeast where I live, there's a popular yard sign which says something like, in this house, we believe that black lives matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights. And then there are there's usually two or three other statements, but it kind of depends. So it could be right. um, no human is illegal or uh, kindness mm -hmm. is never wasted. So I'm writing a book which is looking at um, five contemporary claims, starting with black lives matter, love is love. Um, and then I'm actually right now writing the chapter on women's rights are human rights. And I'm looking at what Christians do and don't affirm about each of these statements. Oh, it's really interesting. It sounds like a really um, uh, a fascinating little read. And uh, we do, I mean, at least in my neighborhood, you see, you see the amalgamation of all of those different kind of slogans, if you will, they're kind of modern everyday slogans of what, um, of, of what people believe in. But and, and it is, it's interesting to me that it's like, they're all shoved together. And it's almost even the assumption of like, Hey, you have to believe all of these things. Like, I mean, I just think it's even just kind of, you know, interesting social theory of like, do do all of these things go together, and in what ways? And uh, yeah. so, what a fascinating little topic for you to to deconstruct. And um, so, instead of confronting Christianity, you are confronting the American yard sign. I love it. I don't know <laughs> if that's what you're going to call it, but uh, at the moment, it's it's detangling diversity. Oh, they see that's a that's a much better title than what I was. <laughs> you got to tell your publisher whatever you do, don't let this guy write a blurb for the for the jacket. Deconstructing yard signs with Rebecca, I love it. Well, we are we're going to talk about religious violence um, today, and and one of the most I know it's been true for me when I have conversations uh, with people about uh, about religion, and particularly if they come from a skeptical place, that one of the justifications of what they stand on for that is that, man, religion has caused so much violence um, in today's day and age. And, um, and their exhibit A for that is the Crusades, which was mm -hmm. obviously a horrible and challenging period in history. Can you help us to understand what was going on when uh, in that period of time? Yeah, just before I, I dive into that and connecting up with what we just sang a minute ago, I think one of the things we need to recognize as we go into these conversations, or as we honestly confront these questions ourselves, because I know it's very unsettling for Christians as we think through these things, is to recognize that the, the very ground on which we stand when we say that uh, genocide is wrong, for example, mm 
-hmm. or that um, you know going and slaughtering a bunch of women and children in a country that you've just conquered uh, you know raping the women killing the children killing the men doing what you like with the kids the reason we think those things are wrong is actually because of Christianity and so even before, we can talk a little bit more about that as, as the conversation progresses, but even before we look at something like the Crusades, which is important to address, we need to recognize like, wait, why are we assuming that going and conquering another place uh, and um, doing violence to the people there is wrong? And, and historically, the reason is because of, of Christianity. And actually even today, if we look at um, what today's sort of atheist intellectuals have to tell us about um, the reason for things like human rights or uh, there even being any kind of objective right and wrong, good and bad, uh, murder, rape, um, that kind of thing is, is actually not a good thing. Mm. From atheism, there's, there's no reason to say those things. Uh, so even before we kind of get into the, the specifics of, of different um, instances of religious violence, we need to recognize that atheism as a, as a worldview doesn't give us any resources for saying that any of these things might be wrong in the first place. So then looking, looking at the Crusades, and, and I agree it's often something that comes up in, in conversation when I'm talking with, with skeptical folks or, or folks who've, who've maybe been interested in Christianity, grown up with Christianity, but moved away from it. Um, there's this general idea that what basically happened with the Crusades is that a lot of sort of nasty Western Christians completely out of nowhere, went and attacked some nice, peaceful Eastern Muslims. And that, it turns out, is, is actually very much a misunderstanding of, of what happened with the Crusades. Um, so the, the lands that the Crusaders originally went to retake had been Christian lands for a really long time and before they were conquered by Muslim armies. And there was this period where Eastern Christians were kind of crying out to Western Christians for help because they were overwhelmed and Western Christians weren't that interested in, in helping. And then so that the first crusade was, or I guess the best construction on the first crusade was that it was Western Christians actually answering the, the cries of Eastern Christians to come and help. Now, it, that is, as I said, is the, the, the best construction. Um, and I think there's significant truth to that. However, if you look at how the, the history actually played out, you see all sorts of terrible things being done by the Crusaders, um, not just to Muslims actually, but also to, um, this is looking not just at the first crusade, but at subsequent ones as well, um, Jews being attacked sort of randomly by Crusaders along the way. Um, the terrible like sacking of, of Constantinople, one of the largest Christian cities in the world at the time, um, all sorts of like truly terrible things in addition to the uh, large scale slaughter of Muslims in Jerusalem when Jerusalem was first retaken by, um, by the Crusaders in the first place. So even though it is not the case that the, the general sort of myth we have in our minds about the Crusades uh, is, is true, it is nonetheless the case that Christians, um, and it's getting on for a thousand years ago now, uh, behaved in terrible ways with, uh, under the banner of the Crusades. So the question we have to ask there is like, was that consistent with Christianity? Mm. And I think the very clear answer is, is no. Right. Um, and there's complexity and we can, I think we'll get onto this later in the conversation, there's complexity around questions of whether Christians should ever engage in violent acts 
um, and whether that's ever consistent with our, our beliefs as, as Christians. But that's, you know, that's one question, whether Christians should be kind of gleefully slaughtering people in the streets, um, including women and children who weren't even involved in, in, the, in the first sort of conflict. You know, that's very clearly anti-Christian ethics. Yeah. Well, I think, in, so let's go ahead and go there with the, uh, the question that you kind of raised on the heels of that, you know, um, philosophers all the way going back to like, you know, St. Augustine will talk about just war theory and what, what do you, how do you understand kind of the Christian response to be, is there ever an occasion by which it would be okay to go to war? Yeah, and this is a question where I would say, and I, I very much have respect for people who would take a different view. It, it seems to me, and you know, to, to look at an instance of, of the last um, hundred years, it seems to me that if you become aware that Hitler's Nazi regime in Germany is exterminating millions of Jews, then to not intervene from a Christian perspective would be sinful. Now, what exactly does that intervention look like? Um, you know, some people would argue that the, the Christian thing to do when somebody is being um, attacked by another person is to go and stand in between the attacker and the attacked. And yes, you'll die in the process. And yes, the person you're trying to protect might also die as well. But you've at least kind of done something to interpose yourself between the attacker and the attacked. Um, others would say, actually, what you do is you go and you fight on the side of the oppressed against the against the oppressor and and I you know I have quite a bit of time for that view now of course in any wartime situation there's going to be complexity and there's going to be um sinful motivations and there's going to be political intrigue and I I, I wouldn't want to say that there has in history been a war that was in every sense just right however I think there have also been situations where Christians have sort of stood on the sidelines and not intervened when they really should have done yeah yeah, no, I think, I mean, you know, looking back on history, just in my own personal opinion, you look back on that we stood on the sidelines during the Rwanda genocide was a horrible abdication of intervention that would have uh, been required to do that. Um, yeah, and right, you know, right yeah. now, it seems likely that what's happening in China um, mm -hmm. is to Uyghur Muslims it is not far off what was happening to the Jews in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. It's very possible that our children will read in the history books or our grandchildren read in the history books that we basically sat around and let the equivalent of the Holocaust happen. Yeah. So, you know, these are very live and, and current questions. Very relevant, real time. And, and the complexity, you know, like in the Rwanda genocide, for example, there wasn't a political military powerhouse standing in the way of the US intervening you know, in the same way that it would be with regards to China. So there are complex, like you said, there's a lot of complexity. And I found for me personally, like I can read Martin Luther King Jr. and see his avocation for uh, nonviolence and peace and that kind of thing and read C.S. Lewis and find them both compelling for different mm -hmm. reasons and in different ways as we apply it. And I think that's the challenge is how do we faithfully apply those, those ethics? Um, well, the accusation, you know, kind of broadly is, you know, that uh, religions cause violence. So let's back up and ask the question, like, are there any religions that um, have, you know, have been, you know, purely form of peace? Like, for example, a lot of people think of Buddhism as uh, a peaceful religion. 
Yeah, and in answer to that question, absolutely not. If, if you're looking at a major world religion, there is not a single one that doesn't have blood in its hands. Right. And um, you know, Buddhism is, is a good example of, of this. We saw the persecution of um, Rohingya Muslims in um, Myanmar, like Buddhist majority of Myanmar. Um, we, we see, I mean, I read an article in 2018 in the New York Times where they were saying, you know, why are we surprised by stories of, of Buddhist violence? Um, or again, from a Western perspective, it's easy to sort of think of Hindus as um, you know, Hinduism as a sort of peaceful religion, because I think in our, our minds often in, in the West, we sort of lump together quite Eastern religions um, as if right. they're sort of, but there's some particular connective tissue there. And then you look at um, the sort of Hindu nationalism in, in India and the, the ways in which minority religious groups are persecuted there. So the reality is whichever religion you look at, including Christianity, Right. You find blood on the hands of religious people. Yeah. And the question is, what are we comparing that to? Exactly. And so, you know, I, I would argue that all of us are religious. It's only a matter of what you're religious towards. All of us worship. It's a matter of what you're worshiping. And so there are other there are other regimes. There are other isms in the world. Um, in you know, when you think of major atheistic political uh, movements in world history, um, how do how do they fare with not having blood on their hands? Yeah, I mean, communism is obviously the the biggest example of this, and communism, I think, is particularly um, kind of poignant because at heart it sounds like kind of a good idea. Like, I, I can understand somebody saying, you know, what we've seen so much evil done in the name of religion, so let's let's kind of eliminate God from the the process here. And let's set about trying to make everybody equal. It sounds good. I mean, it, it sounds, it's a very different um, style from fascism. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of see why people would have bought into that. And then you look at the history of how communism has played out in the last century. And you see so many deaths that it makes Hitler and the Holocaust look like small. I mean, right. tragically so just the sheer proportion of people um, murdered by the state effectively in, in communist regimes and that we see that you know, continuing today. So there's, there's something very um, sobering there that I think should make us reflect on human nature. And this is, this is, I think, one of the great strengths of Christianity is that the Bible is not naive about human nature. And it, it diagnoses us as people who for sure are capable of good things, but who actually are at heart pretty bad. And I, I think there's a, there's a kind of naivety woven into the fabric of, of communism that aspires to something that human beings seem incapable of delivering on. Um, and I think this is also a naivety that we see in a, a lot of contemporary kind of quote secular thought, which again, it is essentially building on Christian ethics and, and this, um, I don't know if I've waved this book around in, in previous interviews, but this book, mm -hmm. uh, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World by um, non-Christian British historian Tom Holland sort of charts how, how Christianity shaped, how, shapes how we think morally today um, and how some of our basic assumptions about you know, universal human rights and care for the poor and equality of men and women, et cetera, et cetera, have actually come to us from Christianity. They're not self-evident truths. Um, and then, so I think there's a, a naivety that um, at least a certain kind of segment of, of leading intellectual atheists today have about human nature, where there's a sense of, 
if we only got people the right kind of education, then they would behave really well. And actually, <laughs> history is, is a long story of human beings not behaving very well if they have kind of half the chance. Um, and then I think, again, I don't know if I've waved this book around, but for those who sort of enjoy a somewhat nerdy read. It's um, like show and tell night. I love it. Yeah, it's like show and tell. Well, so this is a, this incredibly successful book and millions of copies sold globally. Um, Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And, and he, is, he is witheringly honest about the fact that things like human rights completely made up. There is no such thing as justice. Um, there's no such thing as, I mean, the, what he's doing is taking a, a solely scientific view. I mean, I actually think and many non-Christian commentators have, have said this as well. I think some of his sort of scientific claims go way beyond the actual evidence, but if you strip back any um, sort of sense of, of Christian moral understanding and you try to locate, hang everything on what we know about humans simply from biology, then Sapiens gives you a, a presentation of, of human beings as like making, making things up um, like human rights and human equality. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, when I when I looked through that book, and I confess to have not read it uh, closely, I was impressed by its intellectual honesty. Um, in in terms of you know, obviously don't don't share the same convictions of the author, but um, it, it is important to to deal with the intellectual honesty about where do these things historically, philosophically, actually come from in terms of our commitment to the dignity of another person, um, and that there, there's a uniqueness and a distinctiveness that comes from our opinion, from God in the image of God. Yeah, and it, it, kind of going back to the, the yard sign, I think we have to recognize that the, the very soil in which those signs are planted is Christian soil. Mm -hmm. Like actually none of those statements, Black Lives Matter, um, women's rights or human rights, love is like, all, all of these are predicated on the idea that human beings are, are fundamentally morally equal uh, and that we sort of need to take that as, as a starting point and, and um, Tom Holland's interesting about this. He, he says that even, even when we kind of modern Western 21st century folk mm -hmm. are in deep debates about gender and sexuality, for example, actually both sides are appealing to Christian ethics. Right. Uh, and the, the idea that the, the weak and the marginalized um, should have the same equivalent rights to the strong and the powerful. Yeah. I think it's Frank Turek who talks about in his book, Stealing from God, you know, like the typical dialogue that happens in a lot of modern society today is to make an assertion about human rights or about those types of things. And, and, and then in order to be able to make that assertion, they have to steal back from God the assumptions of what was actually given to us through, um, through biblical Christianity. Mm. And uh, so uh, I love that phrase of the kind of you're stealing back from God, something that you, uh, you say that can't come from him. Um, you, one of the things that you talk about, and you kind of alluded to this, is when it comes to the subject of religious violence, there's kind of a problem behind the problem. Can you tell us what that is? Um, oh, remind which problem behind the problem? I feel like there are, there are a couple. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know, that, that in essence, when you're talking about religious violence um, or basically any kind of violence, um, that what's behind that is the human condition in such a way that it doesn't matter whether it's coming from 
uh, one particular religion or another, we think that there's actually a problem that's behind all of that, that's in the human condition that goes unaddressed. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, um, my husband and I, a couple of months ago, were watching the, the British TV series Broadchurch. Uh, Great show, is, I love it. Yeah, you've seen it, okay. So uh, for those who don't know, um, the first season is all built around figuring out who, who killed this young boy, this 12-year-old boy who, who's dead on the beach at the beginning of the first series. And then the second series is a, a, um, built on figuring out that the previous murder mystery um, that the main detective had been involved in. And what's really interesting in both these scenarios is that when you find out who killed the 12 year old boy and then who killed the, the young girl and the, the young woman, mm -hmm. in every instance, they didn't actually really mean to do it or they mm -hmm. didn't really want to do it. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, oh, something happened by accident and then that kind of caused them to do something else. And then they realized that they, given that they'd done that, they had to do this. Sorry to spoil this series for anyone who hasn't. Spoiler alert. <laughs> But, but what was really striking to me was to think, gosh, one of the messages that I'm receiving loud and clear here mm -hmm. is that any of us could have been any of those people. Right. Like there actually, but for the grace of God go I. Yeah. The line between me and a murderer is frighteningly slim. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is nothing in my life right now would be better if I murdered somebody. Mm. In fact, it would be a whole lot worse. But, but what if I was in a situation where actually quietly smothering a child would save my own skin? Like, I, I hope I wouldn't do that. I truly hope I wouldn't do that, but I don't know it. Or what if, what if you and I were living in um, Germany in the late 1930s? And, and around us, more and more people were uh, comfortable with turning... Jewish neighbors into the authorities. Like, we would like to think that we wouldn't be those people. Mm -hmm. or, or what if we look back at American history and, and we think of, of the times of slavery or, or segregation, we, we would like to think that we would be the brave uh, kind of Christian protester in all these scenarios. But the reality is most of us would have gone along. And, mm -hmm. and I think this is where Christianity um, this is one of the ways in which Christianity is, is incredibly compelling when you, when you look at history and when you look at the world around us and when you look in your own heart is to say, actually, what if we human beings aren't fundamentally good? Hmm. What if, in fact, we are so bad that the very son of God needed to come to die for us? Yeah. Yeah. Created to be good, but incapacitated by our own brokenness um, at, at this point in time. I remember, I'll personalize that for a little bit because I, I remember when I was early on in ministry, one of my ministry heroes, one of my mentors um, was, was in, uh, kind of got, got publicized in an affair. And, and my first reaction was despair. My second reaction was, I know enough about him that if it can happen to him, it can happen to me. Yeah. And uh, that I wasn't able to react because it wasn't just a media thing. For me, it was a relationship. I knew enough about that person's faithfulness and commitment and, uh, and love of God that, that it really, that, that fault line of brokenness lies uh, within, within my own heart and soul. And that's particularly important when it comes to the, to the subject of violence, because 
we can depersonalize this in such a way that we hold ourselves up in an esteem or an arrogance that doesn't really exist. Because in reality, the circumstances, as you pointed out, the circumstances of our life have just made it such to the point where it has not been convenient or there hasn't been enough incentive to be able to do so. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you had to do with, you know, because last week we talked about the importance of the biblical witness. I know that as a pastor, a lot of people will come to me and if they're reading like in a Bible plan or something along those lines, and they get into like Joshua and Judges and First Samuel, particularly that late bronze era of the biblical witness. I mean, it's, there's a lot of bloodshed and some of it is even like ostensibly or seemingly like sanctioned or commissioned by God. Can you help us try to untangle the, the difficulty of reading those texts of terror? Yeah. Um, firstly, we read those texts with Christian eyes. Again, sort of to go back to what I was saying earlier. Um, and again, it's interesting reading Tom Holland on, on the sort of Greek and Roman context, a little different than, than what we're talking about in the Old Testament, but actually relevant, I think. In the ancient world, one country's army going and completely obliterating the people of the country that they've conquered was equivalent to us when like our, our favored sports team wins. Mm -hmm. It was not morally problematic. Right. It was like great news, right? We beat those whoever they are and we therefore have the right to rape their women and murder their men and do what we like with their kids. Like that was just sort of the deal. Yeah. So, so I think the first thing, again, we need to remember is that, that we actually come to these texts with eyes that have been formed by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and by the, the ways in which the Christianity has sort of shaped even actually our, our non-Christian friends as they, as they read these texts to say, well, wait a minute, there's something feels really wrong here about that being okay. Now, I think then we need to say, um, and I, I think this is a, a testimony throughout the scriptures, actually, that as my daughter, after hearing the summary of Job put it, that God is God and we are not. Mm -hmm. And that actually, whereas we do not have the right of life or death over anybody, God actually has the right of life or, or death over everybody. Um, it's an interesting moment in the New Testament where, where Paul is explaining you know, why Christians shouldn't take revenge. He says, the reason is, uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. So when, when we look back at, at Old Testament scenarios where God has specifically instructed one army to fight against another, for example, um, or, and, and interestingly, if, if you read the, the Old Testament, you'll find certainly a period where, where Israel was being called to um, conquer other nations. But then you also find situations where God calls other nations to mm -hmm. come and completely right. do his people in as judgment on them. So the, the judgment kind of goes in, in, in all directions in the Old Testament. Um, and, and so I think you know, one of the things we have to say is that actually God does have the right of life or death over, over everybody in, in a way that we don't. Um, I think we also have to recognize that the, and we don't always see this sort of vividly in the immediate text, but we often see it in the surrounding text of saying, actually, this was a nation, for example, where child sacrifice was, was very central to their religious practice. And this was a nation where it, all sorts of things that are actually deeply offensive to God um, were going on. And so God using his people to bring judgment on those people 
um, while it, it, it certainly kind of uh, disturbs us, and I think rightly disturbs us, because as I say, we should be um, we should be people who've been so uh, shaped by by New Testament ethics that, that we feel troubled by these things. At the same time, we need to recognise that God is is the God of justice, mm -hmm. uh, and that actually, um, if we take the the whole Bible on its own terms, we have to say that yeah, God has the right of both temporal and eternal life or death over everybody. So one of the things you're advocating for is being able to read through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and particularly the crucifixion of Jesus gives us the clearest window as to the heart of God with regards um, to violence. What, what kind of difference does the crucifixion in particular make for us in helping us to understand the, the bedrock that is the Christian understanding of that? Yes, yeah, so I think the, the crucifixion does um, incredible work for us in terms of saying, actually, God himself took the role of the victimized. Uh, and rather than coming and showing his, his power in, in a kind of conventional way, he actually came and, and revealed his power and love by submitting himself to a brutal death. Mm. At the same time, I think we need to recognize that, and it's, it's fascinating, I find the book of Revelation so, so interesting, even though I certainly don't understand much of it. Um, when people uh, talked about as crying out for the, the mountains to fall on them and for the hills to cover them in the book of Revelation, mm -hmm. it's to save them from the wrath of the Lamb. And I find even the way that's formulated interesting, because Jesus obviously is, is the Lamb, and that word, the Lamb, is, is associated with Jesus as the sacrificial victim as the one who died on that Roman cross, as the one who bore the sins of the world and took our griefs and sorrows on himself. And yet he is also the one who is so terrifying in judgment that people will call on the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them. Mm. So I, I think whereas we do look at, at those texts in the Old Testament through New Testament eyes, and we should do, and, and New Testament eyes which should take the, they really take the sword out of our hands, Mm -hmm. um, and cause us to be on the side of, of, of the oppressed and not of the oppressor. I think, again, we also have to recognize that, that God is God and we are not, and that he has the right to life or death, and that Jesus himself is the one who has been appointed judge. So I think we need to, to hold together our understanding of Jesus as the ultimate sacrificial victim and our understanding of him as the ultimate judge um, who will meet us in, in terrifying splendor and glory if we haven't submitted to him it's it's being able to see stereoscopically the the level of the image of jesus as lamb and lion at the same time which is the compelling dual vision that is the book of revelation to help us to see we we compartmentalize so often our thinking about god and these different doctrines and even these questions that we ask when in reality we have to uh, we have to be able to see um, that there, there's more to it than just isolating one discussion or one different attribute of God. We get a couple of questions. We don't have a lot of time, but a couple of questions to get to. One's uh, a layup for you here. What would be a simple, trustworthy resource to about, like if we want to find out more about what happened in the Crusades to be able to speak intelligibly on that, is there a go-to author or book for you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm just making a quick look at my notes here because I know in the section of my book um, on that I quoted. Is it Rodney Stark who has a book on the Crusades? I'm trying to remember. 
Um, yeah, of my head. Um, I was quoting from Thomas Madden, The Real History of the Crusades, uh, an article there, and um, there's a book as well. And then, yeah, I think checking in the notes of my book would be helpful on this. It's been a couple of years now since I, I wrote it. Um, so <laughs> it's not as fresh in my mind. All right, so we'll, we'll say, uh, we'll say go, to the, go to the notes section of Confronting Christianity. I'll, I'll even ask Morgan <laughs> to see if she can peek at that for us and maybe throw it into the chat before, um, before we sign off today to be able to kind of answer, um, answer that. Um, you know, so somebody's got a question here, and I think you've touched on some of this, but I like, I like the way that this is put. How do you reconcile the message of Jesus to turn the other cheek, to love your enemy? Um, and, and then the, the fact that you have the Old Testament, per, you know, kind of commandments uh, about, like, you need to go into that village and you need to conquer it and things like that. How do we balance that? Can you give us a little more on trying to balance those things or how do we hold that tension? Yeah, I, I think um, I, often things that we see sort of physically in the Old Testament, we recognize uh, as pictures of something um, that we see spiritually in, in the New Testament. So um, that and, and often things that we see um, working out in the Old Testament, we, we then see fulfilled in Jesus. Mm -hmm. So I think it is absolutely legitimate that there are ways in which um, Christians act today that are different from how God's people called to act um, you know, before Jesus came. I think this would be one, one example. Um, however, as I, as I said, I do think we have that, that sense of, of continuity because I, I don't think there is a fundamentally different God revealed to us in the Old Testament right. and the New Testament. We see in both a God of incredible tender mercy and, and patient, long-suffering care. Um, and we see a God of justice. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, both of those both of those things together. Um, and I think one of the things, one of the ways of thinking that I find most helpful is to think the New Testament calls us very seldom, I can't think of a, a single example where we're told to defend our own rights, but we are often told to defend the rights of others. And I think we need to sort of have that framework in place as we think about our own um, ethics, you know, turning the other cheek um, and how that kind of plays out in our, in our own lives. I think when we look back to Old Testament situations where God has given a specific instruction, hmm. um, then disobedience to God, even if we don't understand the instruction, is incredibly bad idea. Um, and so, as I say, he he understands a, a much bigger picture than we ever could in, in each of these scenarios. Um, and I think, yeah, I think we need to submit ourselves to that. Yeah, I mean, another example of this would be like the near sacrifice of Isaac. I mean, God mm -hmm. tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, whom he loves, and to offer him as a sacrifice, kind of a la what you were referring to earlier about, you know, uh, the pillage of, you know, kind of the nature of tribal warfare that happened in that time, that that was expected. Notice that Abraham doesn't object. Like it was very common at that point in history to have people have to sacrifice a child to appease the gods. And the point of the story is, is, is the fact that Abraham doesn't have to, um, and, uh, and that God himself will provide the sacrifice. And then when yeah. we fast forward to the New Testament, you're like, oh my gosh, I see that in and through the cross, that God himself is the sacrifice so that we don't have to keep offering the sacrifice in order to try 
um, to make things whole and to make things right. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a great example. But it's interesting, as you say, that Abraham's um, faith is recognized in that he mm -hmm. does, he's, he's ready to do what God tells him to do. Correct. Even though it's the last thing he wants to do. And he doesn't understand because God had promised this son to him. Right. So he doesn't understand why God is asking this in any way, shape or form. And yet he decides that God knows better than he does. And at the last minute, his hand is stopped. And yeah, the Lord provides the sacrifice both in the, the ram in that moment. And then obviously in Jesus, his own son, ultimately. Um, but I think that that recognition that, that really we need to submit ourselves to to God um, and recognize that he has has the right to choose things that we don't um, is, is important. I think, I don't know, I think there's, it's uncomfortable for us, especially as 21st sure. century Westerners in the kinds of context that we've grown up, up in. Um, I think there's a tendency for us to want to say, you know what, like let's find a way to kind of airbrush out mm. the parts of the Old Testament where God directly commands violence. I don't think we can do that. And I don't think we need to. I don't think it actually serves us if we do. Um, but nor, nor does that mean that we should sort of take up our swords and go and conquer people we feel like conquering. Um, that's clearly against what the New Testament is calling us to. Absolutely. I love, I love the fact that Morgan got uh, in time before we close today. She's got your footnotes in the chat. So if you want to uh, copy and paste or screen capture uh, kind of the footnotes, if you want to find out more information about the Crusades. Um, uh, I love the fact that my dad in the Q&A is reminding us of a scripture of what Paul says to kind of find helpful with this tension of like, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you to live at peace with everyone. Um, mm. And I do love the conditions of the way that Paul has laid out that ethic, um, because sometimes it's not possible. And sometimes it's not dependent on us. But when it is in those two instances, that we ought to live at peace with everyone. And I think that's a, a great kind of summation of some of the, the challenge that we need to face as we, we face the difficulty of the question of the religious violent history of it. Rebecca, thank you. We've got one more week next week for everybody. And uh, next week is a, a really easy topic. Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? And so we will tackle that next week. Thank you so much, Rebecca. And uh, we wish everybody the best and Godspeed and prayers to with you all. Take care, everybody. Thanks, everyone.